Shoes and Stockings, a collection of short stories by Louisa May Alcott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Francis. A Modern Cinderella or the Little Old Shoe, Part 2. How It Was Found by Louisa May Alcott Summer ripened into autumn, and something fairer than sweet peas and minuet in Annie's garden grew. Her nature was the counterpart of the hillside grove, where, as a child, she had read her fairy tales, and now, as a woman, turned the first pages of a more wondrous legend still. Lifted above the many-gabled roof, yet not cut off from the echo of human speech, the little grove seemed a green sanctuary, fringed about with violets, and full of summer melody and bloom. Gentle creatures haunted it, and there was none to make afraid. Wood-pigeons cooed and crickets chirped in their shrill roundelays, anemones and lady-ferns looked up from the moss that kissed the wanderer's feet. Warm airs were all afloat, full of vernal orders for the grateful sense. Silvery birches shimmered like spirits of the wood. Larches gave their green tassels to the wind, and pines made airy music sweet and solemn, as they stood looking heavenward through veils of summer sunshine or shrouds of wintry snow. Nan never felt alone now in this charmed wood, for when she came into its precincts, once so full of solitude, all things seemed to wear one shape. Familiar eyes looked at her from the violets in the grass. Familiar words sounded in the whisper of the leaves, grew conscious that an unseen influence filled the air with new delights, and touched earth and sky with a beauty never seen before. Slowly these mayflowers budded in her maiden heart, Rosily they bloomed, and silently they waited till some lover of such lowly herbs should catch their fresh aroma, should brush away the fallen leaves and lift them to the sun. Though the eldest of the three, she had long been overtopped by the more aspiring maids. But though she meekly yielded the reins of government, whenever they chose to drive, they were soon restored to her again. For Di fell into literature, and Laura into love. Thus engrossed, these two forgot many duties, which even blue stockings and emiratos were expected to perform, and slowly all the homely humdrum cares that housewives know became Nan's daily life, and she accepted it without a thought of discontent. Noiseless and cheerful as the sunshine, she went to and fro, doing the tasks that mothers do, but without a mother's sweet reward, holding fast the numberless slight threads that bind a household tenderly together, and making each day a beautiful success. Di, being tired of running, riding, climbing, and boating, decided at last to let her body rest and put her equally active mind through what classical collegians term a course of sprouts. Having undertaken to read and know everything, 
she devoted herself to the task with great energy, going from Sioux to Swedenborg with perfect impartiality, and, having different authors, as children have sundry distempers, being fractious while they lasted, but all the better for them when once over. Carlyle appeared like scarlet fever, and raged violently for a time, for being anything but a passive bucket, Dye became prophetic with Mahomet, belligerent with Cromwell, and made the French Revolution a veritable reign of terror to her family. Goethe and Schiller alternated like fever and Og. Mistopheles became her hero, Joan of Arc her model, and she turned her black eyes red over Egmont and Wallerstein. A mild attack of Emerson followed, during which she was lost in a fog, and her sisters rejoiced inwardly when she emerged informing them that the sphinx was drowsy, her wings were furled. Poor Di was floundering slowly to her proper place, but she splashed up a good deal of foam by getting out of her depth, and rather exhausted herself by trying to drink the ocean dry. Laura, after the midsummer night's dream that often comes to girls of seventeen, woke up to find that youth and love were no match for age and common sense. Philip had been flying about the world like a thistledown for five and twenty years, generous-hearted, frank, and kind, but with never an idea of the serious side of life in his handsome head. Great, therefore, were the wrath and dismay of the enamored thistledown, when the father of his love mildly objected to seeing her begin the world in a balloon with a very tender but very inexperienced aeronaut for a guide. Laura is too young to play house yet, and you are too unstable to assume the part of Lord and Master Philip. Go and prove that you have prudence, patience, energy, and enterprise, and I will give you my girl, but not before. I must seem cruel that I may be truly kind. Believe this, and let a little pain lead you to great happiness, or show you where you would have made a bitter blunder. The lovers listened, owned the truth of the old man's words, bewailed their fate, and yielded. Laura for love of her father, Philip for love of her. He went away to build a firm foundation for his castle in the air, and Laura retired into an invisible convent, where she cast off the world and regarded her sympathizing sisters through a grate of superior knowledge and unshared grief. Like a devout nun, she worshipped St. Philip and firmly believed in his miraculous powers. She fancied that her woes set her apart from common cares and slowly fell into a dreamy state professing no interest in any mundane matter but the art that first attracted Philip. Crayons, bread-crusts, and gray paper became glorified in Laura's eyes, and her one pleasure was to sit pale and still before her easel, day after day, filling her portfolios with the faces he had once admired. Her sisters observed that every Bacchus, piping fawn, or a dying gladiator, bore some likeness to a comely countenance, 
that heathen god or hero never owned. And seeing this, they privately rejoiced that she had found such solace for her grief. Mrs. Lord's keen eye had read a certain newly written page in her son's heart. His first chapter of that romance, begun in paradise, whose interest never flags, whose beauty never fades, whose end can never come till love lies dead. With womanly skill she divined the secret, with motherly discretion she counseled patience, and her son accepted her advice feeling that, like many a healthful herb, its worth lay in its bitterness. Love like a man, John, not like a boy, and learn to know yourself before you take a woman's happiness into your keeping. You and Nan have known each other all your lives, yet till this last visit you never thought you loved her more than any other childish friend. It is too soon to say the words so often spoken hastily, so hard to be recalled. Go back to your work, dear, for another year. Think of Nan in the light of this new hope. Compare her with comelier, gayer girls, and by absence prove the truth of your belief. Then, if distance only makes her dearer, if time only strengthens your affection, and no doubt of your own worthiness disturbs you. Come back and offer her what any woman should be glad to take, my boy's true heart. John smiled at the motherly pride of her words, but answered with a wistful look. It seems very long to wait, mother. If I could just ask her for a word of hope, I could be very patient then. Oh, my dear, better bear one year of impatience now than a lifetime of regret hereafter. Nan is happy. Why disturb her by a word which will bring the tender cares and troubles that come soon enough to such conscientious creatures as herself? If she loves you, time will prove it. Therefore, let the new affection spring and ripen as your early friendship has done and it will be all the stronger for a summer's growth. Philip was rash, and has to bear his trial now, and Laura shares it with him. Be more generous, John. Make your trial, bear your doubts alone, and give Nan the happiness without the pain. Promise me this, dear. Promise me to hope and wait. The young man's eye kindled, and in his heart there rose a better chivalry, a truer valor, than any dies knights had ever known. "'I'll try, mother,' was all he said. But she was satisfied, for John seldom tried in vain. "'Oh, girls, how splendid you are! It does my heart good to see my handsome sisters in their best array,' cried Nan, one mild October night as she put the last touches to certain airy raiment fashioned by her own skillful hands, and then fell back to survey the grand effect. Di and Laura were preparing to assist at an event of the season, and Nan, with her own locks fallen on her shoulders, for want of sundry combs promoted to her sister's heads, 
and her dress in unwanted disorder, for lack of the many pins, extracted in exciting crisis of the toilet, hovered like an affectionate bee about two very full-blown flowers. Lara looks like a cool undine, with the ivory wreaths in her shining hair, and Di has illuminated herself to such an extent with those scarlet leaves that I don't know what great creature she resembles most, said Nan, beaming with sisterly admiration. Like Juno, Zenobia, and Cleopatra simmered into one, with a touch of Xantippe by way of spice. But to my eye, the finest woman of the three is the disheveled young person embracing the bedpost, for she stays at home herself, and gives her time and taste to making homely people fine which is a waste of good material and an imposition on the public. As Di spoke, both the fashion plates looked affectionately at the grey-gowned figure, but, being works of art, they were obliged to nip their feelings in the bud and reserve their caresses till they returned to common life. "'Put on your bonnet, and we'll leave you at Mrs. Lord's on our way. It will do you good, Nan. And perhaps there may be news from John.' added Di, as she bore down upon the door like a man-of-war under full sail. "'Or from Philip,' sighed Laura, with a wistful look. Whereupon Nan persuaded herself that her strong inclination to sit down was owing to want of exercise, and the heaviness of her eyelids a freak of imagination. So speedily, smoothing her ruffled plumage, she ran down to tell her father of the new arrangement. "'Go, my dear, by all means. I shall be writing, and you will be lonely if you stay. But I must see my girls, for I caught glimpses of certain surprising phantoms flitting by the door.' Nan led the way, and the two pyramids revolved before him with the rapidity of lay figures, much to the good man's edification for with his fatherly pleasure there was mingled much mild wonderment at the amplitude of array. "'Yes, I see my geese are really swans, though there is such a cloud between us that I feel a long way off and hardly know them. But this little daughter is always available, always my cricket on the hearth.' As he spoke, her father drew Nan closer, kissed her tranquil face, and smiled content. "'Well, if I ever see pictures, I see em now, "'and I declare to goodness it's as interestin' as play-actin', every bit. "'Miss Di, with all them bows in her head, "'looks like the Queen of Sheby when she went a-visitin' what's-his-name. "'And if Miss Laura ain't as sweet as a lally-baster figure, "'I should like to know what is.' "'In her enthusiasm,' Sally gambled about the girls, flourishing her milk-pan like a modern Miriam about to sound her timbrel for excess of joy. Laughing merrily, the two Montblancs bestowed themselves in the family ark. Nan hopped up beside Patrick, and Salon, roused from his lawful slumbers, morosely trundled them away. But looking backward, with a last good-night, Nan saw her father still standing at the door with smiling countenance, and the moonlight falling like a benediction on his silvery hair. 
Betsy shall go up the hill with you, my dear, and here's a basket of eggs for your father. Give him my love, and be sure you let me know the next time he is poorly, Mrs. Lord said when her guest rose to depart after an hour of pleasant chat. But Nan never got the gift, for to her great dismay, her hostess dropped the basket with a crash and flew across the room to meet a tall shape pausing in the shadow of the door. There was no need to ask who the newcomer was, for even in his mother's arms, John looked over her shoulder with an eager nod to Nan, who stood among the ruins with never a sign of weariness in her face, nor the memory of a care at her heart. For they all went out when John came in. Now tell us how and why you came. Take off your coat, my dear, and here are the old slippers. Why didn't you let us know you were coming so soon? How have you been? And what makes you so late tonight? Betsy, you needn't put on your bonnet and— Oh, my dear boy, have you been to supper yet? Mrs. Lord was a quiet soul, and her flood of questions was purred softly in her son's ear. For being a woman, she must talk, and being a mother, must pet the one delight of her life and make a little festival when the lord of the manor came home. A whole drove of fatted calves were metaphorically killed, and a banquet appeared with speed. John was not one of those romantic heroes who can go through three volumes of hair-breadth escapes without the faintest hint of that blessed institution, dinner. Therefore, like Lady Leatherbridge, he partook copiously of everything." while the two women beamed over each mouthful with an interest that enhanced its flavor and urged upon him cold meat and cheese, pickles and pie, as if dyspepsia and nightmare were among the lost arts. Then he opened his budget of news and fed them. I was coming next month, according to custom, but Philip fell upon and so tempted me that I was driven to sacrifice myself to the cause of friendship, and up we came to-night. He would not let me come here till we had seen your father, Nan, for the poor lad was pining for Laura, and hoped his good behavior for the past year would satisfy his judge and secure his recall. We had a fine talk with your father, and upon my life Philip seemed to have received the gift of tongues, for he made a most eloquent plea which I've stored away for future use, I assure you. The dear old gentleman was very kind, told Phil he was satisfied with the success of his probation, that he should see Laura when he liked, and, if all went well, should receive his reward in the spring. It must be a delightful sensation to know you have made a fellow-creature as happy as those words made Phil to-night. John paused and looked musingly at the matronly teapot, as if he saw a wondrous future in its shine. Nan twinkled off the drops that rose at the thought of Laura's joy, and said, with grateful warmth, "'You say nothing of your own share in the making of that happiness, John. But we know it, for Philip has told Laura in his letters all that you have been to him.' and I am sure there was other eloquence beside his own before father granted all you say he has. 
Oh, John, I thank you very much for this. Mrs. Lord beamed a whole midsummer of delight upon her son, as she saw the pleasure these words gave him, though he answered simply, I only try to be a brother to him, Nan, for he has been most kind to me. Yes, I said my little say tonight, and gave my testimony in behalf of the prisoner at the bar. A most merciful judge pronounced his sentence, and he rushed straight to Mrs. Lay's to tell Laura the blissful news. Just imagine the scene when he appears, and how Di will open her wicked eyes and enjoy the spectacle of the disheveled lover, the bride-elect's tears, the stir, and the romance of the thing. She'll cry over it tonight and caricature it tomorrow. And John led the laugh at the picture he had conjured up to turn the thoughts of Di's dangerous sister from himself. At ten, Nan retired into the depths of her old bonnet with a far different face from the one she brought out of it, and John, resuming his hat, mounted guard. Don't stay late. Remember, John. And in Mrs. Lord's voice there was a warning tone that her son interpreted aright. I'll not forget, mother. And he kept his word, for though Philip's happiness floated temptingly before him, and the little figure at his side had never seemed so dear, he ignored the bland winds and tender night, and set a seal upon his lips, thinking manfully within himself, I see many signs of promise in her happy face, but I will wait and hope a little longer for her sake. "'Where is father, Sally?' asked Nan, as the functionary appeared, blinking owlishly, but utterly repudiating the idea of sleep. "'He went down the garden, miss, when the gentleman cleared, being a little flustered by the goings-on. Shall I fetch him in?' asked Sally, as irreverently as if her master were a bag of meal. "'No, we will go ourselves,' and slowly the two paced down the leaf-strewn walk. Fields of yellow grain were waving on the hillside, and sear corn blades rustled in the wind. From the orchard came the scent of ripening fruit, and all the garden plots lay ready to yield up their humble offerings to their master's hand." But in the silence of the night, a greater reaper had passed by, gathering in the harvest of a righteous life, and leaving only tender memories for the gleaners who had come so late. The old man sat in the shadow of the tree his own hands planted. Its fruit boughs shone ruddily, and its leaves still whispered the low lullaby that hushed him to his rest. "'How fast he sleeps! Poor father! I should have come before and made it pleasant for him.' As she spoke, Nan lifted up the head bent down upon his breast, and kissed his pallid cheek. "'Oh, John, this is not sleep.' "'Yes, dear, the happiest he will ever know.' For a moment the shadows flickered over three white faces, and the silence deepened solemnly. Then John reverently bore the pale shape in, and Nan dropped down beside it, saying, with a rain of grateful tears, He kissed me when I went, and said a last good night. 
For an hour steps went to and fro about her, many voices whispered near her, and skillful hands touched the beloved clay she held so fast. But one by one the busy feet passed out, one by one the voices died away, and human skill proved vain. Then Mrs. Lord drew the orphan to the shelter of her arms, soothing her with the mute solace of that motherly embrace. "'Nan! Nan! Here's Philip! Come and see!' The happy call re-echoed through the house, and Nan sprang up as if her time for grief were past. "'I must tell them. Oh, my poor girls, how will they bear it? They have known so little sorrow.' But there was no need for her to speak. Other lips had spared her the hard task, for, as she stirred to meet them, a sharp cry rent the air, steps rang upon the stairs, and two wild-eyed creatures came into the hush of that familiar room, for the first time meeting with no welcome from their father's voice. With one impulse, Di and Lara fled to Nan, and the sisters clung together in a silent embrace, more eloquent than words. John took his mother by the hand and led her from the room, closing the door upon the sacredness of grief. Yes, we are poorer than we thought, but when everything is settled we shall get on very well. We can let a part of this great house and live quietly together until spring. Then Laura will be married, and Di can go on her travels with them, as Philip wishes her to do. We shall be cared for, so never fear for us, John. Nan said this as her friend parted from her a week later, after the saddest holiday he had ever known. "'And what becomes of you, Nan?' he asked, watching the patient eyes that smiled when others would have wept. "'I shall stay in the dear old house, for no other place would seem like home to me.' I shall find some little child to love and care for, and be quite happy till the girls come back and want me." John nodded wisely as he listened, and went away prophesying within himself, "'She shall find something more than a child to love, and God willing shall be very happy till the girls come home, and cannot have her.'" Nan's plan was carried into effect. Slowly the divided waters closed again, and the three fell back into their old life. But the touch of sorrow drew them closer, and though invisible, a beloved presence still moved among them. A familiar voice still spoke to them in the silence of their softened hearts. Thus the soil was made ready, and in the depth of winter the good seed was sown was watered with many tears, and soon sprang up green with a promise of a harvest for their after years. Di and Laura consoled themselves with their favorite employments, unconscious that Nan was growing paler, thinner, and more silent as the weeks went by, till one day she dropped quietly before them, and it suddenly became manifest that she was utterly worn out with many cares and the secret suffering of a tender heart bereft of the parental love which had been its strength and stay. 
I'm only tired, dear girls. Don't be troubled, for I shall be up tomorrow, she said cheerily as she looked into the anxious faces bending over her. But the weariness was of many months' growth, and it was weeks before that tomorrow came. Lara installed herself as nurse, and her devotion was repaid fourfold, for sitting at her sister's bedside she learned a finer art than that she had left. Her eye grew clear to see the beauty of a self-denying life, and in the depths of Nan's meek nature she found the strong, sweet virtues that made her what she was. Then, remembering that these womanly attributes were a bride's best dowry, Laura gave herself to that attainment, that she might become to another household the blessing Nan had been to her own. And turning from the worship of the goddess beauty, she gave her hand to that humbler and more human teacher, duty, learning her lessons with a willing heart for Philip's sake. Di corked her inkstand, locked her bookcase, and went at housework as if it were a five-barred gate. Of course, she missed the leap, but scrambled bravely through, and appeared much sobered by the exercise. Sally had departed to sit under a vine and fig tree of her own, so Di had undisputed sway. But if dishpans and dusters had tongues, Direful would have been the history of that crusade against frost and fire, indolence and inexperience. But they were dumb, and Di scorned to complain, though her struggles were pathetic to behold, and her sisters went through a series of messes equal to a course of Prince Benridden's peppery tarts. Reality turned romance out of doors, for unlike her favorite heroines in Satin and Tears, or Helmet and Shield, Di met her fate in a big checkered apron and dust cap, wonderful to see. Yet she wielded her broom as stoutly as Maul Pitcher shouldered her gun, and marched to her daily martyrdom in the kitchen, with as heroic a heart as the maid of Orleans took to her stake. Mind won the victory over matter in the end, and Di was better all her days for the tribulations and the triumphs of that time, for she drowned her idle fancies in her wash-tub, made burnt offerings of selfishness and pride, and learned the worth of self-denial as she sang with happy voice among the pots and kettles of her conquered realm. Nan thought of John, and in the stillness of her sleepless nights prayed heaven to keep him safe, and make her worthy to receive, and strong enough to bear the blessedness or pain of love. Snow fell without, and keen winds howled among the leafless elms, but herbs of grace were blooming beautifully in the sunshine of sincere endeavor, and this dreariest season proved the most fruitful of the year, for love taught Laura, labor chastened die, and patience fitted Nan for the blessing of her life. Nature, that stillest yet most diligent of housewives, began at last that spring cleaning which she makes so pleasant that none find the heart to grumble as they do when other matrons set their premises adust. 
her handmaids, wind and rain and sun, swept, washed, and garnished busily. Green carpets were unrolled, apple boughs were hung with draperies of bloom, and dandelions, pet nurslings of the year, came out to play upon the sward. From the south returned that opera troupe whose manager is never in despair, whose tenor never sulks, whose prima donna never fails, and in the orchard bona fide matinees were held, to which buttercups and clovers crowded in their prettiest spring hats, and verdant young blades twinkled their dewy lorgnettes as they bowed and made way for the floral bells. May was bidding June good morrow, and the roses were just dreaming that it was almost time to wake, when John came again into the quiet room which now seemed the Eden that contained his Eve. Of course, there was a jubilee, but something seemed to have befallen the whole group, for never had they appeared in such odd frames of mind. John was restless and wore an excited look, most unlike his usual serenity of aspect. Nan, the cheerful, had fallen into a well of silence, and was not to be extracted by any hydraulic power, though she smiled like the June sky over her head. Di's peculiarities were out in full force, and she looked as if she would go off like a torpedo at a touch. But through all her moods there was a half-triumphant, half-remorseful expression in the glance she fixed on John. And Laura, once so silent, now sang like a blackbird as she flitted to and fro, but her fitful song was always, Philip, my king. John felt that there had come a change upon the three, and silently divined whose unconscious influence had wrought the miracle. The embargo was off his tongue, and he was in a fever to ask that question which brings a flutter to the stoutest heart. But though the man had come, the hour had not. So, by way of steadying his nerves, he paced the room, pausing often to take notes of his companions, and each pause seemed to increase his wonder and content. He looked at Nan. She was in her usual place, the rigid little chair she loved, because it once was large enough to hold a curly-headed playmate and herself. The old work-basket was at her side, and the battered thimble busily at work, but her lips wore a smile they had never worn before. The color of the unblown roses touched her cheek, and her downcast eyes were full of light. He looked at Di. The inevitable book was on her knee, but its leaves were uncut. The strong-minded knob of hair still asserted its supremacy aloft upon her head, and the triangular jacket still adorned her shoulders in defiance of all fashions, past, present, or to come. But the expression of her brown countenance had grown softer, her tongue had found a curb, and in her hand lay a card with pots, kettles, and company inscribed thereon, which she regarded with never a scornful word for the company. He looked at Laura. She was before her easel as of old, 
but the pale nun had given place to a blooming girl who sang at her work, which was no prim palace, but a clyte turning her human face to meet the sun. "'John, what are you thinking of?' He stirred as if Di's voice had disturbed his fancy at some pleasant pastime, but answered with his usual sincerity. "'I was thinking of a certain dear old fairy-tale called Cinderella.' "'Oh!' said Di, and her O oh was a most impressive monosyllable. I see the meaning of your smile now, and though the application of the story is not very complimentary to all parties concerned, it is very just and very true. She paused a moment, then went on with softened voice and earnest mien. You think I am a blind and selfish creature. So I am, but not so blind and selfish as I have been. For many tears have cleared my eyes, and much sincere regret has made me humbler than I was. I have found a better book than any father's library can give me, and I have read it with a love and admiration that grew stronger as I turned the leaves. Henceforth I take it for my guide and gospel, and looking back upon the selfish and neglectful past can only say, Heaven bless your dear heart, Nan. Lara echoed Di's last words, for with eyes as full of tenderness she looked down upon the sister she had lately learned to know, saying warmly, Yes, heaven bless you, dear heart, Nan. I never can forget all you have been to me, and when I am far away with Philip, there will always be one countenance more beautiful to me than any pictured face I may discover. There will be one place more dear to me than Rome. The face will be yours, Nan, always so patient, always so serene. And the dearer place will be this home of ours, which you have made so pleasant to me all these years by kindnesses as numberless and noiseless as drops of dew. "'Dear girls, what have I ever done that you should love me so?' cried Nan, with happy wonderment, as the tall heads, black and golden, bent to meet the lowly brown one, and her sister's mute lips answered her. Then Laura looked up, saying playfully, "'Here are the good and wicked sisters. Where shall we find the prince?' "'There!' cried Di, pointing to John." and then her secret went off like a rocket, for with her old impetuosity she said, I have found you out, John, and am ashamed to look you in the face remembering the past. Girls, you know when father died, John sent us money, which he said Mr. Owen had long owed us and had paid at last. It was a kind lie, John, and a generous thing to do, for we needed it, but never would have taken it as a gift. I know you meant that we should never find this out, but yesterday I met Mr. Owen returning from the West, and when I thanked him for a piece of justice we had not expected of him, he gruffly told me he had never paid the debt, never meant to pay it, for it was outlawed, and we could not claim a farthing. John, I have laughed at you, 
thought you stupid, treated you unkindly. But I know you now, and never shall forget the lesson you have taught me. I am proud as Lucifer, but I ask you to forgive me, and I seal my real repentance so and so. With tragic countenance, Di rushed across the room, threw both arms about the astonished young man's neck, and dropped an energetic kiss upon his cheek. There was a momentary silence, for Di finally illustrated her strong-minded theories by crying like the weakest of her sex. Lara, with the ruling passion strong in death, still tried to draw, but broke her pet crayon and endowed her Clytie with a supplementary orb, owing to the dimness of her own. And Nan sat with drooping eyes that shone upon her work, thinking with tender pride, They know him now, and love him for his generous heart. Di spoke first, rallying to her colors, though a little daunted by her loss of self-control. Don't laugh, John! I couldn't help it. And don't think I'm not sincere, for I am. I am. And I will prove it by growing good enough to be your friend. That debt must all be paid, and I shall do it, for I'll work my books and pen to some account, and write stories full of clear old souls like you and Nan, and someone I know will like and buy them, though they are not works of Shakespeare. I've thought of this before, have felt I had the power in me. Now I have the motive, and now I'll do it. If Di had proposed to translate the Koran, or build a new St. Paul's, there would have been many chances of success, for once moved, her will, like a battering ram, would knock down the obstacles her wits could not surmount. John believed in her most heartily, and showed it as he answered, looking into her resolute face. "'I know you will, and yet make us very proud of our chaos, Di. Let the money lie, and when you have a fortune, I'll claim it with enormous interest. But believe me, I feel already doubly repaid by the esteem so generously confessed, so cordially bestowed, and can only say, as we used to years ago, now let's forgive and so forget. But proud Di would not let him add to her obligation, even by returning her impetuous salute. She slipped away, and shaking off the last drops, answered with a curious mixture of old freedom and new respect. No more sentiment, please, John. We know each other now, and when I find a friend I never let him go. We have smoked the pipe of peace, so let us go back to our wigwams and bury the feud. Where were we when I lost my head, and what were we talking about? Cinderella and the Prince. As she spoke, John's eye kindled, and turning, he looked down at Nan, who sat diligently ornamenting with microscopic stitches a great patch going on the wrong side out. Yes, so we were. And now, taking Pussy for the godmother, the characters of the story are well personated. All but the slipper, said Di, laughing, 
as she thought of the many times they had played it together years ago. A sudden movement stirred John's frame, a sudden purpose shone in his countenance, and a sudden change befell his voice as he said, producing from some hiding place a little worn-out shoe. I can supply the slipper. Who will try it first? Di's black eyes opened wide as they fell on the familiar object. Then her romance-loving nature saw the whole plot of that drama which needs but two to act it. A great delight flushed up into her face as she promptly took her cue, saying, No need for us to try it, Laura, for it wouldn't fit us if our feet were as small as Chinese dolls. Our parts are played out. Therefore, exeunt wicked sisters to the music of the wedding bells. And pouncing upon the dismayed artist, she swept her out and closed the door with a triumphant bang. John went to Nan, and, dropping on his knee as reverently as the herald of the fairy tale, he asked, still smiling, but with lips grown tremulous, Will Cinderella try the little shoe and, if it fits, go with the prince? But Nan only covered up her face, weeping happy tears, while all the weary work strayed down upon the floor as if it knew her holiday had come. John drew the hidden face still closer, and while she listened to his eager words, Nan heard the beating of the strong man's heart and knew it spoke the truth. Nan, I promised mother to be silent till I was sure I loved you wholly, sure that the knowledge would give no pain when I should tell it, as I am trying to tell it now. This little shoe has been my comforter through this long year, and I have kept it as other lovers keep their fairer favors. It has been a talisman more eloquent to me than flower or ring, for when I saw how worn it was, I always thought of the willing feet that came and went for others' comfort all day long. When I saw the little bow you tied, I always thought of the hands so diligent in serving anyone who knew a want or felt a pain. And when I recalled the gentle creature who had worn it last, I always saw her patient, tender, and devout, and tried to grow more worthy of her, that I might one day dare to ask if she would walk beside me all my life and be my angel in the house. Will you, dear? Believe me, you shall never know a weariness or grief I have the power to shield you from. Then Nan, as simple in her love as in her life, laid her arms about his neck, her happy face against his own, and answered softly, Oh, John, I never can be sad or tired any more. End of Part 2 How It Was Found End of A Modern Cinderella or The Little Old Shoe by Louisa May Alcott